Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Church Podcast. We're happy that you would join us for today's teaching. As a church, we're passionate about helping people find and follow Jesus, no matter who they are or where they are from. If you have any questions about Jesus, the church, or the teaching you're hearing today, please don't hesitate to contact us online at ericksoncovenant.ca. And now, let's listen to this week's teaching. Last week we witnessed the great deliverance of God's people out of Egypt. We heard the song earlier that they sang on the shores of the Red Sea after realizing that they really were free. Today we get to see where God is going with these people, what he's going to do. You know, I love what we're doing right now in this series. As a church, we're on a bit of a walking tour, as it were, a walking tour through the scripture and trying to get a sense of the whole narrative arc, beginning with creation, but following right through the fall and on into God's rescue of us through his covenant with Israel and then ultimately through the coming of his Messiah, Jesus Christ, to accomplish the redemption and the renewal of all creation, of all people. I love this because I think that understanding the whole story of where it's all going and how it all fits together, that's often a missing, pe- missing piece in our reading of the Bible. And as a result, the various stories, episodes, characters, they can feel like that old Lego bucket that you've got stored in the back closet from when you were a kid. You pull it out and it just looks like a big jumbled mess that at one point, uh, it, it made something in particular. And, and so we can take that jumbled mess out and try to construct something that makes sense, but often looks very different than what was intended. Sometimes this scripture can be just like that. You see, the whole story of the Bible is about God's commitment to the rescue and the renewal of his creation. Renewal. That's God's goal. And we've got to keep that in the forefront of our minds while we're reading this story. We want to keep asking during every single episode in this long winding story, how is God working right here in this particular moment, right here in this specific story? How is God working out his plan of renewal for all of creation? And what implications does that have for us right now? That's why the subtitle to our series is Becoming Active Participants in the Greatest Story of All. Because as we come to know this particular story, we realize that we have a role to play too. That God has made us part of this story. Well, I hope you're enjoying this as much as I am. So, back to Exodus now. God has rescued his people out of Egypt. Now what? With God's goal in mind, perhaps we can pose the question like this. How will God initiate the renewal for the world through these freshly redeemed slaves who, let's be honest, know very little about God and even less about his ways? How's God going to do that? As we discover in the story, This will be no small challenge. 
Because being rescued from slavery doesn't immediately translate into a full experience of freedom. You know, the shackles might be off the body and the whips off the back, but all the ways that they learned under slavery or when they were not really understanding who God was or while they were worshiping other idols or the experiences that they have had, those have marked them as a people. They've marked the ways that they view themselves and treat one another, even the way they understand the world and worship God. We can too easily skip over that. You know, when we're reading this story, we can assume that God's people sort of popped out, fully formed from the womb of the Red Sea with healthy theology and meaningful relationships and maybe a willingness to just leave everything behind that maybe had deformed them as a people under Pharaoh. But not so. You see, they may have been inheritors of the promises that God gave to Abraham, but their working worldview, the things they took to work every day, the way they interpreted the world around them, had been far more shaped by the Egyptian gods and mythologies than an understanding of the true God. Their ways of relating to each other as men and women had been deformed by abusive idolatry. Their understanding of just how the world worked around them, how to ensure good crops, how to have healthy kids, why the stars move the way they do, or why does the sun come up the way it comes up? All these things you need to do to keep things in balance, they understood through the lens of Egyptian powers. Not through the early creation stories of Genesis, which we've heard, but at this point, they probably haven't. And that's not even getting into the regular stuff of life, about seeking revenge, or managing conflict, or ensuring fertility, or or appeasing the gods, or understanding government, or negotiating trades, or raising livestock, or finding a spouse. Every imaginable aspect in every area of life had been affected by, conformed to, an idolatrous, ruthless culture. And now, cut free by God from this abusive tyranny of Pharaoh, how would they live? Do they simply bounce under their feet into a whole new way of living? All we have to do is look a few chapters ahead in the story to discover the answer to that. The fact is, they continue to live out in their relationships with each other exactly how they've learned to live out their relationships, in abusive, violent behavior. And they continue to worship and interact with the world around them in the exact ways they've been formed. The fact is, they worship false gods the first moment they're given an opportunity to do so. And it continues to grab a hold of them and snare them for literally centuries to come. Without God's very clear, very direct, very monumental guidance, helping them establish and reinterpret and understand this whole new way of living and how it affects every area of their life, every area of the way they think and relate, without that, this newly formed nation doesn't stand much of a chance. Yes, they are God's rescued people, but now they need to become God's renewed people. You know, in a sense, this can be true of us. Think about it this way. We can come to know and follow Jesus, receiving all that God has done for us in Christ. Forgiveness, life purpose, uh, 
freedom from, from certain practices, uh, the Holy Spirit given to us. New creation has come and we're guaranteed of resurrection. That can all be true, and yet, when we're honest, we realize that we're still lugging around old ways of seeing the world, old ways of interpreting things, previous ways of engaging in relationship, maybe habitual ways of reacting in a crisis. And those can often be shaped a lot more by, you could say, pre-salvation mindsets than the new creation that God has given to us in Christ. How often do we hear someone say, well, I believe in Jesus, but then go on and describe a way of thinking, a way of, of living, or maybe a way of reacting that actually runs counter to the heart of God, counter to his desires, counter often to even his direct commands. And we can think, how does that work? We only have to scan the headlines. And we find that there are Christians who will act as though they are representing Christ, but to do it in ways that seem unrecognizable to the Jesus we meet in the Gospels. That's why, for example, our faith and our politics are often so misaligned. Followers of Jesus who fail to connect their faith to their political views and allow their faith to inform and shape and change and challenge, well, without that, we can find Christians who unthinkingly represent Christ in very unchristlike ways, supporting ideologies and policies that actually contradict the very, very basic teachings of Jesus. The same can be true when we fail to let God's word shape our understanding of money, for example, or sexuality, or race, education, or even the care of our own bodies. And that's why all throughout the scripture, but particularly in the New Testament, the word salvation is such an expansive word. Yes, salvation does refer to when we come to understand who Jesus is and we repent and we turn away from being our own bosses and we follow Jesus and we receive his forgiveness and we receive the Holy Spirit. Of course, salvation refers to that. But salvation is more than just that. Salvation also refers to the ongoing work of saving us that the Holy Spirit does by taking this new creation life and working it into the whole of our lives and doing that for all of our lives. Salvation is also about the restoration, the renewal of the whole world, of all creation, both human and non-human. Salvation is also about our final resurrection in Christ. Salvation is a big word and it's also a long, long process. Something that we have to continue to submit ourselves to, to let the Holy Spirit work in us. And I think we can all admit, whether it's here in Exodus by the side of the Red Sea or here in 2020 down by Kootenai Lake, the Holy Spirit has a lot of work to do and I for one am thankful that he is no quitter. Well, back to our opening question. How will God initiate renewal, his renewal for the word, world, through this freshly redeemed slave people who know very little about God and even less about his ways? The question applies to us, too. How is he working his renewal through us? Because if we're honest, we also 
have been often more formed by our idolatrous culture and our inherited worldviews than, than by the kingdom of God in Christ. How will he do it? He'll do it by making a covenant with us. God pursues renewal through covenant. Let's keep going in our Exodus story. Well, having rescued the children of Israel out of slavery, Yahweh now leads them to a special mountain, a place where he had promised to meet them. All along the way since the Red Sea, you can read about it in Exodus 16 through 18, God has been caring for them. He's been providing them fresh water, daily bread, got a rain from heaven, even a local delivery of fresh quail. God's been protecting them from enemies and all along reinforcing their new status as freed people, as redeemed people, as his people. But now the day has finally come when God is going to hammer out a deal with them, making it clear what up to this point has gone largely unsaid. Yahweh, their deliverer, is going to enter into a formal covenant with them, becoming Yahweh, their God, and they, his people. Let's read the opening verses of Exodus 19. This is how it goes. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. And now this is God relaying what specifically he wants Moses to say to them. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of Israel and set before them all the words of the Lord that he had been commanded to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. You know what this is like. When I'm performing a wedding ceremony, I do something at the very start that is called the declaration of intent. That is, as the bride is standing at the front with usually her father and the the groom is beside me, I ask both couples, I basically said, are you, Mrs. Miss Awesome, going to have this, Mr. Wright, to be your lawfully headed, wedded husband or lawfully wedded wife? And I ask them, will you comfort them and be loyal to them? And I I ask them uh, this series of questions and they answer, I will. Really, it's my way of asking them, are you really serious about this? Because this is your last chance to bolt. And, and I get them to kind of agree before they even enter the vows that this is what they're going to do. Well, that's kind of what's going on here at the start of Exodus 19. It's like a declaration of intent. God says, 
You've seen what I did for you. You know who I am. You know I can be trusted. And here's what I'm going to do. If we enter into this covenant and you keep it, you're going to be my bride. You're going to be my treasured possession, my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. But, but, God is saying to them, do you want that? Will you enter into this covenant with me? Because this is your chance to bolt. You can get out of this. This is your opportunity to be the runaway bride at the altar of Sinai. God is saying, will you have me as your God? Will you be my people? Are we going to do this thing? And the people respond with a very clear, yes, we will do everything the Lord has said. So then what God says is, okay, get ready, I'm coming. And the next series of verses is Moses preparing the people to meet with God. I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud, God says. And the people will hear me speaking and will put their trust in you, he says to Moses. And so Moses says, he says, people, consecrate yourselves because God is coming. And Moses helps them figure out all the details. He says, wash all your clothes. And they set up barricades so people can't get too close to the mountain because God has warned them, when I am on that mountain, if they come too close, they will die. They're even told, Moses tells them, to hold off having sex for a few nights which you got to know is really serious because God takes the whole command to be fruitful and multiply pretty seriously. So for them to hold off on that, you know, this is a big, big deal. Well, Exodus 19, verse 16, we read this. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. It's a powerful moment in the life of these people. And everyone's then getting ready and and, and there's a lot of back and forth in the story. This God who's coming, what does all this mean? What does all the smoke and all the preparation mean? The God who is going to meet them is a holy God. A God entirely different than any God they ever imagined or heard about completely and utterly different than the gods of the Egyptians as well as the gods into the land which he's taking them to. He's holy. He's awesome. He's powerful. And the people must appropriately be ready to meet with him. And so with all of that as a setup, God speaks to Israel. God enters into a formal relationship with his people, working through them for the sake of of all. Because God knows that the only way toward renewal is through covenant. And how he does this is crucial. In Exodus 20, this is the chapter where God first gives the children of Israel the big Ten Commandments, the famous Ten Commandments that most of us are pretty familiar with. But he starts first with who he is and what he's done. Listen to these first two verses of Exodus 20. Remember, 
People are before the mountain. It's smoking. God is speaking now and they're listening. God spoke all these words and the first words out of his mouth right at the start of the Ten Commandments are these. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That's the header to the Ten Commandments. That's how it begins. And what it tells us is so, so important. It tells us that grace is always first. Before the law is given, grace has come. The covenant God is a, the covenant that God is establishing with them begins with this act of gracious redemption. When they were helpless slaves, God heard their cries and he brought them out of this land of slavery. Everything that follows is response to the God who has saved them. Grace always comes first. This is very important. Because the covenant God establishes with Israel is not a way of getting God to save them. It's not a way of getting God to be appeased. It's not a way of impressing God so that God will notice them. No, they've already been saved. They've already been rescued. God has poured out his grace to them, not only by rescuing them, but now by providing for them and and watching over them and giving them food to eat and bringing them to Mount Sinai. The covenant that God establishes then is now the way they're going to live as his saved people in relationship with him and in relationship with each other. The commands that are being given aren't ways of earning salvation. They're an expression of their salvation. It's not a way of getting freedom. It's a way of living in freedom. This is critical to get. Their salvation is already accomplished. And through that mighty act of deliverance, God takes his people as his own. And what he's saying here at the start is critical. I am your God. You are my people. And this is how this relationship is going to work. What kind of God am I? Well, he has revealed that now in powerful ways. I'm a God of grace. I'm a God of power. I'm a holy God who delivers you and protects you and provides for you and promises to do in you and through you things so far beyond your imagination. Things that will impact all the world. I am a God like no other. This is the message that's being conveyed. And based on that prior act of salvation, based on the revelation of his character and his intentions, based on all of that, now God goes on to describe how they're going to live in relationship with him and with each other. And that's what the Ten Commandments are all about. Because a God like no other needs a people to match him. A God like no other needs a people to match. And so now we read the big Ten Commandments. Here's how it goes. You shall have no gods before me, no other gods before me. You shall make for yourself an Im- not make yourself an image of anything in heaven, on earth, waters below. Don't bow down to them. Don't worship them because I am the Lord your God. I'm a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, 
Neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The first part of the Ten Commandments are all about their relationship with God. And now the rest, the ones we might be even more familiar with, are all about their relationship with each other. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't give false testimony. And don't covet. That's the Big Ten. And when people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will keep you, will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Can you hear it? I'm a God like no other, and now I'm shaping a people to match. You are my people, God is saying, and I want you now to live as reflections of who I am in the way that you live with each other and in the land I'm bringing you into, to live as the rescued people that you are. A God like no other with a people to match. And as the story unfolds, God's people, we discover fairly quickly, do fail to keep his covenant. It's a hard story to read sometimes. What does he do, though, at that point? God in his grace doesn't scrap it all. That's actually one of the most amazing things about the story as it unfolds. God keeps working and working and working right up to the point when through Israel comes one man, the great covenant keeper, Jesus Christ, coming as the God who is like no other and coming as the person to match being both God to us and representing us to God. Jesus fulfilled completely in himself all that God desired for his world, and then he offered it back as a gift to God. Through this covenant is how renewal is coming. It's how God initiates his renewal through his people, and even though they failed, Through them, Jesus came. And it's how Jesus establishes his kingdom with us through the new covenant made in his own blood. It's how God even continues to work out that new covenant now by the Holy Spirit. God is a God like no other. This is what we discover even here in this Exodus story. And through Christ and by the Holy Spirit, we are being made into a people to match him. Well, how can we respond? The first way that we respond when we read a story like this, when we see the ark as it goes through the whole rest of the story, is that we celebrate that we have a God who is like no other, that he is holy and gracious and powerful, that he delivers, that he is aware of our needs, that he walks with us, that he brought through all of these winding paths to fruition his own son who would keep the covenant who would be the perfect sacrifice and would offer us life. This is an amazing part of the story, and we never want to forget that this is the God that we celebrate and the God that we follow, a God who is like no other. And so our first response is always worship. It's always praise. It's always to say, thank you, God, for being who 
you are, to give praise and glory to him. And the second is to continue to yield our lives to him, to yield our lives to the work of the Holy Spirit in us. The reality is when we read through this story and we see how resistant and hard-hearted the children of Israel were, we recognize that in our own selves. We recognize that we fail just like them, that we, like them, need Jesus to stand in for us. But also we recognize that God continues to work, doesn't he? By giving us his Holy Spirit, God is saying, I'm committed to still bringing about in you my long hope for desire for you and for the whole world. And so our response is to yield to that, to say, Holy Spirit, I want to be a person who matches. I want to be a person of new creation. I ask you to establish in me a life of freedom, a life of joy, a life of purpose, where my heart and my mind is being reshaped by you so that my life expresses your life, so that I'm able to see the things and the habits and the ways of interacting that are patterned after the old way of doing things. And I'm able to ask you to help me, to change me, to do in me what you long to do. We don't do this to earn God's grace any more than the children of Israel did. We've already received God's grace that's open for us. Rather, we do it because we are recipients of his grace and we want to live in response to him. Our prayer is very simple. God, you are a God like no other. And so make me, make us a people to match. Nothing says this more clearly than communion. And today is the last weekend of the month, and that's been our practice at the Erickson Covenant Church to celebrate communion together. And so as a way of bringing this home today, I want to invite you to participate in communion right in your home or wherever you are today. I hope you've had an opportunity to grab some bread, some juice, maybe even wine, and to join with us as we walk through our liturgy that we've been following. God initiates our renewal in Christ and through Christ establishes a new covenant with us. A covenant that was promised long ago, even in the Old Testament. A covenant established by Jesus that he is our God. We are his people. And we come to this table to remember and to celebrate Jesus, this God like no other, who came to us, who lived among us, who taught us what it meant that that God was rescuing us and how he took upon himself our own failure to be who God had called us to be. He offered himself in our place. And then after accomplishing all of that, he took all the credit from that and just dumped it in our account. It's amazing. This is what we celebrate. We are the freed up people of God. And now by the Holy Spirit, we're able to be slowly at times and painfully often, but able to be more and more the God, the people that God has called us to be. And so with that in mind, I invite you to to read along with me, to join me in this liturgy that we've been following as a church as we walk through communion. It's now our sacred privilege to celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. All who humbly put their trust in Christ and desire his help that they may lead a holy life, all who are truly sorry for their sins and would be delivered from them, all who would walk in love with their neighbors and intend to live a new life, 
following the commandments of God, walking from now on in his holy ways, are invited to draw near with faith and to receive this holy sacrament. As we come to this sacred table today, would you join me in this confession of our sin? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Based on that confession of sin, receive these words of assurance. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May Almighty God have mercy on us. Forgive us all our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen us in all goodness and by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep us in eternal life. Amen. Now, let's confess together the words of our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. As you ready your bread and juice, hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ as they are delivered by the Apostle Paul. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. And he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Lord Jesus, we give you praise and glory for being a God like no other who would come in our place, establishing this new covenant with us to begin your work of renewal in us. We give you praise and glory. And now as we participate in the bread and the juice, would you continue to do your renewing work in us?
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me offer a closing benediction to you today. The peace of God, which passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. Thank you for listening. We hope today's teaching provided you with life-changing truth and valuable insight. We hope you've learned of some practical steps forward in your spiritual journey, whether you're finding Jesus for the first time or you have been following him for years. Do you know someone who would be encouraged by what you heard today? We invite you to share this podcast so they can be encouraged too. For more information or to ask more questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for the Erickson Covenant Church.